Uh, for our Old Testament lesson uh, this morning, if you would turn to Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11, a uh, famous passage that opens up the so-called Book of Consolation, Isaiah's Rhapsody, um, or you can just listen along. I'll be reading from the ESV. Cannot help but remember, as I read this passage, was um, already asked to speak immediately following 911, and um, this is the passage that had already been chosen. Uh, that day, you could have dropped a pen as this passage uh, was read, as you can imagine. But even though, thankfully, we are not in the immediate wake of uh, another terrorist attack, let us give careful attention to God's Word and uh, hear carefully these uh, profound words uh, from the book of Isaiah, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, our God, will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules with him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And then turning over to the New Testament, uh, we look at Acts chapter 17, not the whole thing, but picking up at, at verse 16. Uh, this is Paul's uh, first and famous visit to the great metropolis in the ancient world, namely Athens. And uh, we'll read about his visit there from uh, uh, verse 16 following and uh, moving into his address at the Areopagus, which will be uh, the center point of the Lord's word to you this morning. So Acts 17 Verse 16 and following, hear now the word of the Lord. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Or all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and the, a woman named Damaris, and even others with them. As we uh, prepare our hearts to turn to God's word, will you pray with me as we ask for illumination? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these sublime sections of scripture that we were able to read. Indeed, your word is broader than all the heavens, and we are very grateful that you feed us with the manna from heaven week in and week out. O Lord, we beseech you and plead with you that you would grant us that posture without which no one can understand truth especially from your revealed word, uh, namely that we might have reverence and humility. Uh, Lord, uh, pull away all distractions from our mind, uh, knowing now at this point in the service that uh, you deign it uh, correct and appropriate to speak to us. And so, Lord, uh, help us uh, to give due attention to you as uh, if you were speaking to us, which you are from your very word, so that we might be edified, uh, that we might uh, be driven along and led along our uh, path by our true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, does the church exercise a prophetic word towards culture? That's a big question for the New Covenant Church. 
That's a huge question, what, which is being pressed hard upon the corporate church these days as we meditated upon at the conference yesterday. I can think of hardly a better place to turn than this historic moment when Paul is impelled by the Holy Spirit to preach to the men and women and children of Athens, especially the Areopagus. Athens, especially the Acropolis. It's almost ineffable to try and describe. Um, That place you can even draw up in your mind's eye with the beautiful columns and the marble statuary and the pediments and and everything that it represents to Western civilization. I had the privilege of going there before the pandemic, part of a three-week trip, and and to walk among the Acropolis and the ruins. Uh, To be in that vicinity, let alone to be in a hotel right across from the Acropolis and see it lit up at night with beautiful lights is very hard to even describe the beauty, uh, knowing what it meant for Western civilization and for history. Everything that was Athens... And so we want to ask a series of questions here uh, with regards to Athens. Uh, First of all, what would Paul have seen in Athens when he was there? Uh, To invite you to get in a little time capsule and recreate in your own imagination, actually, what Athens would have been like, not only when Paul was there, but previously, so you can understand the significance of his words. We want to ask what it was that Paul spoke publicly when he had this profound moment to uh, speak to people that desperately needed to hear the gospel. We want to ask what did Paul say and to whom did he say it? And moreover, how did he say it? And uh, then we want to ask what does it all mean? Why did Paul say it and what was the effect of what he said? So by way of questions, let's enter into our time capsule and go back to this momentous occasion when Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, is led to preach uh, the gospel for the first time uh, in this center of uh, culture and politics. What would Paul have seen in Athens? Well, first, uh, you must realize that Paul experienced a history, a city with a long history and a and a very noble pedigree of ideas attached to uh, this place. The Acropolis was built in order to celebrate the victory of the Athenians over the Persians. Um, And in this uh, battle and following in the wake of this battle, they erected a statue that no longer exists, didn't even exist at Paul's time, uh, that was given to the honor of Athena, Uh, who had, in their view, delivered them through this battle with the mighty Persian Empire. And it was called Athena Promachus, Athena uh, the Defender. And we know there is an inscription at the base of this huge statue that mariners tell us they could see for miles and miles away as they approached the great port city of Athens, especially her gold cap helmet and her gold tipped spear as it reflected the sun out onto the ocean waters. And it read, the Athenians set this up from the spoil of the Medes. In other words, the spoil of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, The statue was erected in 465, probably completed in 458 to 455. And as I said, you could see it from miles and miles away on a clear day. It rose above the Acropolis. 
and it was devoted to Athena. If Paul had shown up four centuries earlier, he would have experienced in Athens, and especially at the Acropolis, up on the mounts, this big marble building with the columns that's easy to picture in our mind's eye because it's been photo, so photogenic through the years, a unified place. Paul would have experienced a unified place. What, what do I mean by this? Let me explain. He would have experienced a unified place in both the ideas and the ideas that were represented and emblematic in the architecture, in the statuary, in the pediments. Everything about the place had a unified message. Uh, one major theme, perhaps the most important for Periclean Athens and, and what followed in the following century in the 400s BC before Paul got there, uh, would be this. If Paul had been there at that time and had walked into the Acropolis, he would have first uh, been introduced to a pediment, a large marble in uh, uh, stone with an inscription on it, where Heracles was being led before Zeus and also Hera to be immortalized. So that begs the question, how among the Athenians would you be immortalized? And the pediment would have read, a person is immortalized by the works that he or she leaves behind on earth. A person is immortalized, in other words, forever remembered, based upon what he or she does in their earthly existence. Of course, if you know anything about the great epics of uh, Homer, that's exactly uh, what drives uh, the soldiers to uh, bravely fight, that they might have deeds in battle that we immortalized into the future forever and ever. The person is immortalized by the works he or she leaves behind. And thus Athens sets the cultural agenda for the West for hundreds, if not thousands of years. A person is immortalized by the works that he or she leaves behind. But the unified impression would have been also felt from the many religious votive offerings that were there. Now, only the rich could afford to leave votive offerings made of marble. Uh, but there were all kinds of terracotta figurines found on Athens, even to this day, that represent what the poor would leave, namely these little statues uh, made out of clay and such uh, that have been found there. And they would be found all over the place. In fact, as Petronius said in the first century AD, there were so many of those, it was easier to find a god at Athens than it was a human being because of all the trash uh, littered around. I suppose like your parking lot, you know, somebody's got to go out and clean things up after, you know, um, people pull in during the week when this place is quiet. <clears throat> well, the gold was stripped from the Acropolis sometime during the Hellenistic period and taken we do not know where. But in 86 BC, Athens was sacked by the Roman general Sulla. So we're getting close to Paul's visit. And although much of the city was destroyed, uh, the Acropolis was preserved because they were standing before greatness, and even the Romans recognized that. In fact, in 31 BC, Octavian defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and Athens became a provincial capital for Rome. And here was the Roman agenda. Everything's a footnote 
on Athens in Western civilization. So the saying goes. But now Rome wants to come in and subsume and assimilate all the greatness that was Athens, all the ideas, all the art, the best products of human beings created in the image of God into the imperium of Rome. And so in 27 BC, we know the Roman emperor Augustus commissioned a small temple in 27 BC, and a little elegant temple was built. It's still there to these, this day, uh, but you'd walk right past it unless you knew what you were looking for. It's on the northeast side of, of the Acropolis. It's overgrown by weeds, and unless you have a tour guide pointing it out or you know what you're looking for, just, you know, the basis of the columns remain. Oh, all nations, even great Rome, how the flower fades, right? And God appoints nations and tears them down. So even the greatness that was Rome, trying to subsume everything of the greatness of Greece represented in the Acropolis, power politics mixed with the best of intellectual ideas and art and iconography. Oh, how it fades. But there it was. And Athens was being exploited during the Roman period when Paul would have gone there for her ideas and her ideals. So here's my point to set up what Paul would have seen and what Paul spoke publicly. Here you have power politics of the Roman Imperium subsuming all the best of Athens and Western culture. And then you say, what does God want his apostle to preach? in that kind of situation. University town. By this time, shortly before Paul came, it became a university town. So you can think of Corvallis or Eugene. Um, it's not quite like Madison, Wisconsin, where you have the capital right down the street. But you can think of it as taking the Sorbonne, the University of Chicago, Harvard University, plopping it right down in the middle of the beltway with all its statuary that's meant to impress, and then ask the question, what does God want his apostle to preach? Where power politics are being conflated and mixed with the best of intellectual ideas. So we say, where was it that Paul spoke publicly? Well, as we read, picking up verse 16, he spoke publicly the gospel wherever he went. Verse 16 and following says, he preached in the Agora, that is the marketplace. And he was so disturbed by all the idolatry that he saw that he was moved to preach the gospel. And then they led him to the Areopagus. And there's a debate about the Areopagus. It's a topographical place, but what went on there? It was probably a place of judgment with a court We know they prosecuted murder trials there, but it was also a place with the exchange of ideas up on the side of the Acropolis, down a little bit, a little mountain hill. And in Roman times, it became the place of moral development and virtue and education. And uh, if you read this in the original, Steve Bogg can tell you about this later, the exchange of ideas, here are the men at the Acropolis that would go there, and they were like, hints, picking at little pieces of seed, trying to discuss every little intellectual idea that came through their way. 
So satiating their intellectual curiosity, which was on steroids. <laughs> That's where Paul preached at the Areopagus. And what did Paul say, and to whom did he say it? And moreover, how did he say it? In this place, again, that was a conflation of power politics and cutting-edge university town ideas. Well, taking up the latter question first, if you look at the text again, you'll notice how studiously courteous Paul was. He was not bombastic. He was not arrogant. Even though he was moved deeply within his spirit, he also spoke in such a way that showed the uttermost respect for these people lost in their sin, created in the image of God, using their intellects to create marvelous, marvelous pieces of art and culture and literature. He spoke to the Epicureans, those well-known atheistic materialists, for whom pleasure was the chief end of life. Eat, drink, enjoy sex because tomorrow you die. He spoke to the Stoics, that celebrated school of lofty and severe pantheists for whom the universe was considered to be under the iron law of necessity. And if in that fate-driven world you should be slammed, to quote the poet, by the slings and darts of an outrageous fortune, by all means, don't show your emotions on your sleeve and the pain that you experience. Be tough. Buck up under that. Don't show everybody else the pain that you experience because of the horrific nature of this life being so cursed. So here you have a university town being plopped right down in the middle of the mall in D.C., so to speak, and recorded for us in Scripture is what Paul said. Well, in verse 18 and 19, it says, Paul preached to Jesus in the resurrection. But as we progress, we see more. And this is what Paul does. He gives them a little miniature systematic theology. And I'll prove it to you. He hits almost every bullet point. Look at verses 18 and 19, Jesus in the resurrection. But then you turn to 23, the second half of verse 24, and look what he says. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it. Now, what doctrine is that, kids? There's the doctrine of creation. And then notice what happens next, verse 25. This God is not served with human hands, although he needed something, anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. Now, what's that? That's the doctrine of the self-existence of God. He's not turned or swayed by anything in human beings. He's self-existent from before the creation of the world. It's what theologians call the aseity of God. And then you turn to verse 26. He made from one, every one, one person, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Now what's that? That's the doctrine of the federal headship of Adam, that he represents all human beings who will follow in his stead, depending upon his obedience or disobedience, what will happen to them. And then look further at verse 26. Having determined their appointed times, the boundaries of their habitation, 
Now, what's that? That's the doctrine of God's providence, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. He determines whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever comes to pass. And then you look at verse 27 and 28. He goes on. That they may seek God or should seek God. And if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. For he's not very far from every one of us. Now there's the doctrine of the imminence or presence of God. Or maybe better yet, the omnipresence of God. Did he exist everywhere, at all times. And the apostles seem to be saying that their problem, the Athenians, was not so much God's distance from them, but their distance from God. And then look at verse 28. For in him we live and we move and exist, and even as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And he's either quoting Aratus or Cleanthes. That's debated. Now what's that? That's the doctrine of common grace. (laughs) That even pagans, by God's grace, may speak truth from which we may derive truth. And here God is so often in the custom of subsuming pagan ideas and turning them on their head for his own glory and the growth of his kingdom. And he goes on. Verse 29, the apostle draws his sharpened sword. Quote, being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and the thought of man. Now, even though the gold had been removed, the Acropolis is a beautiful place. And you can't not imagine that the apostle here at this point is saying, like this, like this, like this, like those, to point to these exquisite, sublime products of culture that human beings have created. Now, there's the creator-creature distinction, though. There's Romans 1 in all its glory, that men suppress the truth and righteousness, which deep down they know, each and every one of them. The apostle was undoubtedly, and I think, pointing to these images and the statuary all around him, or at least since he was down the Acropolis, up on the hill uh, towards the Acropolis. Haven't been blown up yet by the Venetians. Verses 30 to 31. Then comes the hammer blows of the elegant rhetoric, followed by the symbols of God's profound, effective word. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What's that? That's the doctrine of the second judgment, or the final judgment, which you can find in your confession in the back of the hymnal, chapter 33, section 2, the whole chapter, but section 2 especially. It's like my Muslim cab driver asked me in San Antonio last week, because I used him all week long while I was there on a professional conference, Brian, you're a good man. <laughs> if you don't know me, I'm not really a good man. But do, you believe, do you all believe in the final judgment? I said, yes. So he said what he thought about the final judgment, and then I told him, and I crammed as much of chapter 33 of our confession into that 10-minute cab ride as I could. We believe 
And I'm only telling you what your confession says as a faithful reflection of the Scriptures. We believe that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, He has appointed that day. And when He comes back, it will be for the manifestation of His mercy towards the elect. All those of you who truly love the Lord Jesus, when Christ comes back, it will be manifestation of his mercy towards you. Because where has his justice been finally adjudicated and satisfied? At the cross. Semicolon, second most semicolon in the Westminster Confession. The first one's in chapter 3. But for those who are not in Christ, it will be an act of justice for the manifestation of the damnation of all those who did not bow the knee. Not for those of you who are in Christ, it will be an act of mercy. But for those of you any outside of Christ, when he comes, it will be an act of judgment. It will be the end of common grace. And God will make right all wrongs. But notice more importantly, verse 30 to 31 on the positive side, Oh, by the way, the Muslim cab driver said, oh, that's what Muhammad is going to do for me, too. And I said, I've read the Quran. That's, that's not what he's going to do. <laughs> See, it was too good to be true. My cab driver wanted that to be true of him, too. No. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's the free offer of the gospel to all that would hear. Believer and unbeliever alike. There it is, the free offer of the gospel. Just turn in faith to Jesus Christ and accept him as Lord and Savior. Here's my point. What does God want us to say and to do as a church following this preaching example of what he wanted Paul to do where the kingdom is just breaking ground in new territory? But in the context of the political world, in the context of the intellectual world that lives and moves and has it being round about, uh, round about us. Very simple, this passage teaches us he wants us to proclaim a robust theology which culminates in the bold but courteous proclamation of the work and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the job description for the corporate church. Isn't that enough? You can experience liberty from the devil from the tyranny of your sins, from addictions, from sins you've committed in the past, from sins that have been committed against you, by turning to Christ and his liberating gospel. Why did Paul say it? Why did Paul say it is the next question. Well, there's no anti-intellectualism here, for sure. He's addressing uh, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. But here's my point. 
Obviously, there were more than sophisticated Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in the crowd. And even those Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, do you think they were married, some of them? Do you think they were parents, some of them, or grandparents? Do you think they had spouses whom they had failed? Or their spouses had failed them? Do you think they ever were awakened in the middle of the night and stared at the ceiling and said, how have I sinned against my children? How have I failed? Or children, perhaps in the audience, saying, how have I failed my peers? How have I failed my parents? You think there were any who experienced difficult marriages there in the crowd? Oh, surely there were. Do you think there were any that had personal relational problems and were estranged from significant others? Oh, absolutely. Do you think any of them, even those sophisticated philosophers, ever laid awake at night and said, how have I wasted my life? And nothing pangs the heart more as we get gray hair and draw close to death to think about how I could have lived a more fruitful life as we're on the cusp of going out into eternity. Why did Paul say it? Because he was speaking to the heart of human beings. Some sophisticated intellectuals. Some people who weren't. But all of them shared a common problem, and they needed to hear the gospel. And then we say, what was the effect of Paul saying it? Some believed, some didn't. Remember the opening pediment that was there during fourth century? How is a person immortalized? By the works they do on earth. And then they're remembered into the future. How many obituaries have you read that that's the case? Go get sympathy cards at the grocery store. <laughs> Their memories live on with you. Really? Is that it? Paul, in contrast, says, no, you are remembered based upon your faith in Jesus Christ, and you don't need a work by which you'll be remembered because the only work you need is an alien righteousness that's outside of yourself, that if you have faith in Christ is applied to you through the active obedience imputed to you, dressed in which you're dressed, so that God the Father looks down on Christ's righteousness, not your own. Paul preaches, Paul testifies, Paul calls Charles to preach and testify, and the other ministers here, but also every single one of us, to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ that answers men, women's, and children's most vital needs to get liberation from the devil out from under the tyranny of him and our own sins and our own guilty consciences. And that comes through true Christian liberty found in the gospel alone. This is preaching with covenantal teeth to it. I will send forth my word, and like the rain, it will not return to me void. It accomplishes what God sets out to do with it. We have powerful tools at our disposal in the church of Jesus Christ if we just stick to our primary mission and preach the gospel and administer the sacraments and shepherd the people 
And then we will see God change people. So their names will be written in the book of life. There were people that were immortalized here, not by the works that they did on this earth, but because of their faith, they're written now in scripture. That's immortalized forever. Cleanthes, well, whoever it was, you, you know, you can look here at the end, and, and, and some who were even unnamed. So it wasn't just one or two. That was the effect of what Paul said. By way of conclusion and practical application, just because the church um, should stay out of civil affairs, formally, the corporate church, does not mean that individual Christians should be uninvolved But notice what Paul does in this situation. God calls upon him, and by way of extension, God calls upon you in this university town, (laughs) and in your culture, in your sphere of influence, in your workplace, to bear witness to the gospel, which is life-giving and fructifying as the Lord blesses it. That's the simple message of Acts 17. Let me close this in prayer, and then we'll turn and offer up thanks to God in music as he's spoken to us, and we can sing back to him. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, there is such pressure upon your church right now to change her mission, to forget her high calling, to be distracted by so many things, Lord. But we are so thankful that you are gracious and accommodating to us and speaking to us and giving us this reminder of what you want us to do as Christians in the world, what you want your corporate church to do. Father, give us the grace to do that. And Lord, will you give this church the grace to do that and any churches that may be birthed out of the womb of this church in the future. And Father, you will prosper You promised to do that. You promised to grow your kingdom and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And you've given us powerful tools if we would just wield them as you instruct us to do. But Lord, as you do so, we will be very careful in the future. Five years, ten years down the road now, whatever success you grant this church, we pray that you would fill it, that you would bring all your chosen race in. But we will be very careful to make sure the glory redounds to your son, Jesus Christ in whose dear name we do pray. Amen.